In the late 1980s, Matt Black and Jonathan Moore formed a DJ duo called Cold Cut, and a couple years later started their own record label to put out their music. Ninja Tune has gone on to become one of the premier electronic labels in the world, home to artists like Diplo, Eamon Tobin, and Little Dragon, amongst many others, as well as providing a home for incredible labels like Big Dada, Brain Feeder, and Counter Records. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the Music Business Association. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit merchtable.com to learn more and open a store today. On today's episode, we talk to Matt and John about their new app, Jam Pro, and being in this business for 30 plus years. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Support for the future of what comes from SoundExchange, which provides royalty solutions and advocacy to ensure all music creators are paid what they are owed. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Matt Black. Matt, welcome to The Future of What. Hey, Portia. Good to be here. It's great to speak with you. So I have been a fan of artists on Ninja Tune for a long time. So I wanted to just start off by talking to you about the joys of running a record label. <laughs> well, joyfully, I don't have to do too much hard work nowadays. Oh, that's because nice. Because <laughs> we have a fantastic staff headed by Peter Quick. And, you know, it was just John and me and the telephone in one room 30 years ago. And now it's more than 70 people worldwide, I think, which is quite mind-blowing, really. And soon after we started, which was in 1990, so this year's actually our 30th birthday, we got phoned up by a friend of a friend, and it was Peter Quick, and he said he wanted to work for a small dance label. So I said, well, they're not any smaller or dancier than us. Come on down. And he came down the next day, and he, he never left. So a large part of the success of Ninja Tune is down to Pete's talents and hard work and the excellent ninja tribe which he's gathered around him. And when we started off, John and I, we didn't really know what we were doing but we knew as djs that we liked buying records that were good and so we got into selling records that we thought people would like and it took off Pete has a phrase careful with the cash crazy with the music so i think one reason we've managed to stay in business is if one's a total hippie or punk anarchist it can be hard to keep it together cash flow wise and i think we've unsteadily managed a balance that's that's worked all this time so it's about having good people to work with. I completely agree. You know, my husband started his record label, Kill Rockstars, the year after you guys started Ninja Tune. So this is also, this is his 29th year. Okay. Great name, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. That had nothing to do with me. When it was time to do the accounts twice a year, Pete would put on his special Kill All Artists t-shirt with an image of a revolver. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't mean it. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. And and that's so funny because I think most people really don't understand what kill rock stars was meant to mean because mm. it doesn't actually mean, you know, kill artists. It means the rock star system, you know, of the 80s that I think everybody was sort of rebelling against, actually. I don't know. Were you guys a little bit? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you were in a very different genre, of course. But I think that kind of, oh, let's all worship this guy on stage because that's what you're supposed to do was a bit crap, really. And we wanted to find another way of doing it. John and I were, and we both started off in the same way, which is like, you go to a party, the music's not very good. So you think, well, actually, I could do better than that. And you end up putting on some music and people like it. And then you start being a DJ. That doesn't mean that you want to be on stage. Right. Giving it large, as we say over here. So in a way, John and I were always sort of happiest sort of in a dark corner behind a heap of equipment. On the other hand, people do like to have a sort of charismatic figure on stage that they can appreciate. Um, sometimes I think that charisma is theft. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like, why give up all that to some other person when, as Thelonious Monk said, everyone is a genius at being themselves. But yet then I've been inspired by people with charisma and who take that role and hold it well. So it, it can work. Personally, my favorite star is Beyonce. She's the one that I see using her power and influence and charisma to actually push forward a meaningful agenda rather than just make money and give it large. Absolutely. Well, don't you think that part of the thing about charisma is projecting this air of confidence, whether the person feels it or not, but that you know it often hits people when they're at a particularly low ebb in their own confidence, like when people are in high school or, you know, otherwise sort of young and finding themselves? That's an interesting observation, a particularly low ebb in adolescence. I'm not sure it is a particularly low ebb. It's certainly when it's vulnerable as an adolescent, perhaps not feeling that worthy or, but I'm not sure that that feeling <laughs> goes away <laughs> as one gets older, <laughs> once it gets a bit better at fronting it out, perhaps. But yes. I think that's sort of what I mean by charisma is theft. You know, it's theft if the person that's taking that power is not really giving much back. But I think when it works, people can see an echo of themselves. It is a lot about confidence. I think one of the reasons why, you know, rock vocalists or vocalists generally are so respected is because getting on that stage and picking up the mic and facing an audience is a pretty risky thing. Mm-hmm. So it does take a lot of guts to do that. And then if people see that you're prepared to take a risk and and that taking a risk involves the risk of failure, doesn't it? Yes. So people appreciate seeing that that can work and that it's worth taking a risk sometimes. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I hear that all the time. I hear people say, oh, I could never do that. <laughs> oh, you get up and st- on stage in front of hundreds of people. I, I could never do that. And I think that that is, I mean, talk about giving away your power. I think you can do that. Anyone can do that. Yes. I mean, it's interesting. So I wanted to talk about Jam Pro, our new app, a bit. Definitely. Interesting that in the past, when I've shown people the Forerunner Ninja Jam, I've had people who've totally got it and enjoyed it, and suddenly they're away. I've also had people say, you know, I pass them the phone and say, you know, just tap some buttons and make some sound. They're like, oh, no, no, I could never do that. I'm not an artist. <laughs> right. And I do find that odd because, well, you'd be okay pressing the buttons on your TV remote, you'd probably be okay playing a video game. You'd probably do things in your life that are a lot more complicated than moving a few buttons around on the screen. So don't tell yourself you're you're not an artist. Picasso made a good observation, which was that all children start off as artists. It's preserving that as you become grown up. That's the challenge. 
Absolutely. That's really good. And I think it sort of segues into, I mean, you know, this quickly devolved into a philosophical conversation. I'm, thank you for that. Appreciate that. We don't always have those on podcasts. <laughs> Me neither. But, <laughs> but there's, but you know, it, I think there's a lot about intention when we talk about this and about consequences, right? Because I think a lot of people, and I think we have, you know, I think this is a really deep issue in the music business as a whole. I think people feel like, well, if I'm getting together with my friends and I'm jamming, or if I'm, you know, using Jam Pro at home, but I'm just doing it creatively and for fun, mm. right? So my intentionality is just for fun, mm. then it's not serious and it's not real. And of course, the only people who deserve to make money from something that they create are people who did it intentionally with the goal of making money. Because I feel like we used to hear that, you know, 15 years ago when the digital revolution was starting from artists who said, I don't care if people steal my music. I don't care if, if kids download my music for free because I never intended to make any money from this anyway. I was just having fun with my friends. And I just think that that's a really deep thing that we are facing as a whole in the music business. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a huge thing to unpack for sure. I mean, <laughs> 40,000 new tracks a day are added to Spotify. Right, right. People often ask, you know, how can I get to sign to Ninja Tune? And I have different answers to that. No, there's no one definitive answer. But one of the, my answers is, well, make sure that you keep your love and passion for music center stage and in focus rather than thinking you're going to make some money in a career out of it because that aspect of it, making money in a career, is very, very difficult. Whereas enjoying music and being passionate about it is natural and free and good. So you might have more success, in fact, by letting go of the, oh God, I've got to make some money out of it. Or, you know, unless a few million people like my thing, then it doesn't have any value. I've had many a jam session, which I've totally enjoyed, and I've recorded them all. And at the end of it, I haven't done anything with the recordings. I realized later that it was the jam, which was the experience. Right. The journey was the reward, not arriving at some finished product. So I would encourage people just to play. And we did an album a few years ago called Let Us Play, Whole Cut. It came with a multimedia CD-ROM, which was full of sort of what I call play tools. They're sort of like toys, but you could use them as instruments and tools in a way as well. I don't think there's a hard and fast distinction between the two things. And I think we talk about sometimes homo ludens, you know, that we are the being which plays. Mm -hmm. Of course, other animals play as well. But I think play is good. I think to play music and to play a game and to play a part are the same verb in different senses. And I think that's quite a fundamental thing. Absolutely. I love that. There is a city by the sea, a gentle company. I don't suppose you want to. And as it tells its sorry tale in harrowing detail, its hollowness will haunt you. Its streets and boulevards Or fans and oligarchs and A plaintive melody Truncated symphony An ocean's garbled vomit on the shore 
That was Los Angeles, I'm Yours by the Decemberists. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Matt Black. So I have to ask you, since I don't talk to a lot of professional DJs, so my nine-year-old came home the other day and said to me, Mom, I want to be a DJ. And I looked at him and I said, what makes you say that, dear? And he said, well, because I saw DJ Marshmallow in Fortnite. And I just wondered, <laughs> is, there a, 
Is there an explosion lately of uh, young people who want to get into DJing? You know, here I will show my age and out of touchness. I know what Fortnite is, but I haven't actually played it. So this is a character within that game, yeah? No, it's the real DJ Marshmallow, uh-huh. who I guess is a famous DJ in the States. Okay. And he actually did a live concert in Fortnite that got something like 10 million viewers or something. Oh, that's interesting. I did one of the first virtual concerts like that in the 90s into a setup called Cybertown, which was a sort of prototype of this kind of idea. Well, there you go. I think DJing has been attracting become more sort of alluring for quite a while now. The sort of DJ superstar thing, the rise of dance music and club culture, if there is such a thing, has been pretty inexorable and massive. I love it, and I'm deeply suspicious of it at the same time as well. I think there can be aspects of monoculture and over-commodification, which are not particularly healthy for creativity and individuality. So I think it's great when you see someone doing something and say, yeah, I want to do that. I sort of, when I saw Brian Eno on top of the pops playing the synthesizer with Roxy Music in the 70s, I thought, it's like, yeah, I want to do that. So that can be a great motivating force. And copying as well, I started off copying. We all copy to learn to speak. Our first records were sort of copies of American hip-hop records. Actually, because one can't copy that faithfully, or I couldn't, I ended up with something else. And then inevitably, one puts one's own stamp on things as well. So. I think being a DJ can be pretty cool. I think, though, myself, I don't DJ so much now. If I'm asked to play a set, I'll do it if it's a local festival or a party, which I want to support. And I'm a lot less kind of uptight and snobby than I used to be. I, I will play for the crowd and play things that I think people will know and will dance to and have a good time that I also like. I've changed from my attitude of like, Look, I just do what I do, and if you don't like it, you can f*** off, which is my attitude as a younger man, mellowed slightly there. So I like to mess around with the sound. I don't want to just play one track after another. That can be, DJ can do that and provide a great, fun experience for people. I'm interested in playing with sound, and I I sometimes say um, a disc jockey plays records, a DJ plays with records. Mm, Yeah. So, you know, someone like Kid Koala or, or DJ Shadow, even, I saw a great set of his on YouTube the other day. It's really playing with the music and using it in a creative way. But there's nothing wrong with playing one track after another. You don't even have to mix them. If you're reading a crowd or being part of a community and understanding what they want to hear is also a great skill, not my speciality. Right. So you mentioned Jam Pro, which is your new app. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about what you guys were trying to do when you, because this isn't sort of an upgrade of, of Ninja Jam, right? Which is your previous app. That's right. So what, what were you guys thinking? I mean, how did you improve it? Well, you know, I said around the time of Ninja Jam, my ambition was to create the world's most advanced beat instrument and give it away. And with Ninja Jam being a simpler program, we were able to convert it even for Android and make it run on a phone. And it is a quite an advanced app. I wanted to take it further though and we knew that people wanted to make their own tracks, that they liked the interface, they liked the concept, but they didn't just want to remix other people's bits of tracks. They wanted to make their own tracks and I I also wanted to be able to have an instrument that could do that and to give that to people as well. So that in a way is the main enhancement from Ninja Chan. We've also made it sort of 10 to 100 times more powerful in, in different ways. 
And it's also part of a kind of a 25-year trip to make a new type of electronic music instrument. I never learned to play piano or even guitar. I thought I could save time somehow by using technology. It didn't save save any time. (laughs) But it gave me a way of doing things which has worked out. I wanted something that synthesized aspects of hip-hop DJing, of sampling culture, um, of cut-and-paste aesthetic, of rhythmic dexterity, but was also easy and natural to use. And it was different to the other instruments and programs out there. Well, I wasn't setting out necessarily to be different. I just wasn't really satisfied with the existing things on offer. So in a way, it's my instrument in that I wanted to make something that I could play. But I knew that there would be other people out there that would be into it as well. I don't know how many there are, whether they're thousands or millions, but um, the initial reactions have been pretty decent. And me and my team of geeks have labored long and hard to really make it as good as we can. And I don't know, have you had a go on it? No, I haven't. I'm a drummer uh-huh. and I have a fear of electronic instruments of any sort. Mm. <laughs> mm. I like sticking with the things that are right there, very physical, sort of a very physical. Sure. Although, you know, obviously playing music like that would be very physical as well, but I don't know why that is. I, it's a mental block. Well, I mean, it's, you know, I'm a sort of generalist. I can just about do a few things. I can even hit a drum kit, although. You know, boomch, boomch, about the limit of my dexterity there. But, you know, I respect musicians and, and drummers, you know, the ability to coordinate your arms and legs and get them to do different things at the same time is pretty incredible to me. Though, you know, it's great to specialize if that's your thing. It's also good to sort of try things that you're not familiar with. I did, I, I found a lot of existing music software, which really jams just a piece of music software. I found a lot of things out there, you know, pretty complicated to use. I have many decades, really, of experience of messing around with computers and so on. I am a bit of a geek, but I also find a lot of it makes my brain hurt, and I don't want to be a sort of um, accountant and librarian of sound. A lot of these things, I want to freak out and express myself in a direct way, like you do when you're playing a drum kit. Mm. And I don't want to be too bothered about managing all my presets or remembering all these different types of settings on this effect unit. I just want something which work straight away and so what we've tried to do with jam is make something that's very direct and quick to get into but when you start unpacking it you can customize it and take it quite deeply as well so i don't know if we've achieved that balance but that was the aim that's exciting well you guys must feel i mean technology has changed so much in the last 30 years and it's affected everyone who plays any kind of music of course but i mean for you guys in particular it must be very exciting, the new things that you're able to do. Exciting and paralyzing. <laughs> <laughs> I sometimes, sometimes, I mean, you think more generally with the world, too much freedom is the problem sometimes, isn't it? Right. I occasionally wish I was just back with my four-track cassette and my two turntables and a heap of vinyl. Things were a lot simpler in those days. The, the choices were much more limited. Now, if I open my laptop or even turn on my iPad, the amount of approaches that I could take to doing something are immense. I mean, for a start, I've got to decide do I want to work on visuals or music because I'm really into visuals as well and combining them with music, a whole audiovisual thing. You know, a program like Ableton is like having a huge recording studio plus orchestra plus multi-million dollar 
collection of rare synthesizers and kits. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. And I can just put that in my backpack and off I go. But, you know, I've got to start somewhere. And sometimes all that choice is literally paralyzing, I find. Limitations sometimes are very focusing creatively. So it's great. I love it. Like I say, full orchestra, full studio, full synth collection, and I can make a track and I can get it out on the internet for sale and I can make a video and people can read about it and, you know, I can make a million dollars if anyone gave a monkeys about it because <laughs> everyone's doing that now, right? So right, right. it comes down where like self-promotion becomes the top art form, which I'm not sure it deserves that spot. And that's interesting because then we're sort of full circle back to charisma. Yes. You know, that sort of <laughs> yeah, right. confidence, that putting the willingness to put yourself out yeah. there. And yes. that is interesting. That's that's probably a good place for us to end since we've come back <laughs> to the beginning. Yes, indeed. Good good observation. Yeah. Well, like I say, I, I do like this quote from Polonius Monk, everyone is a genius at being themselves. I think just expressing myself and having fun, that is success for me. And I wish that for everyone out there listening. Well, on that note, thank you. Matt Black from Ninja Tune and Cold Cut. Thank you so much for being with me today on The Future of What. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having us, Portia. Thanks for the support and the interest. Much love.
That was Plus 81 by Deerhoof. You're listening to The Future of What. After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. Also, check out our short podcast series about Bratmobile's potty mouth. It's called Girl Germs, and you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Jonathan Moore. John, welcome to The Future of What. Thank you very much for having me. So I just had a very philosophical chat with Matt, which was fun. But I don't know. I feel like we started on this philosophical foot, so I want to just keep going. Okay. Your label is 30 this year. Yes. And is the band the same age, or did you guys start the band a little before? No, we're older, older than that. So I suppose 1988, 89, I think. All right. I can't remember that in the depths of time. It starts to blur, I know, after a while. Yeah, it does. <laughs> so I'm assuming that like many musicians, especially of that era, you guys started a label to put out your own stuff. Is that how it went? Yeah. Matt and I met in a record shop, which is quite a classic place for DJs to meet. <laughs> you know, in those days, they were places where you went to find out what was going on and et cetera, et cetera. And Matt came in, played me a demo, which eventually turned out to be Say Kids, which was our first record, which was really a kind of mashup mix inspired by Double D and Steinsky. And so we put that out ourselves and then we started our own label, which was ahead of our time. We did then, after several releases, sign to a small independent label called Big Life, which most of our pop side of our career, so What's That Noise, Some Like It Cold, they were released on Big Life. But after our second album, we didn't really see eye to eye about various directions. So we had an offer from Arista, it was then, BMG. Mm. So we signed to them. Uh, they bought us out. So they bought all of our recording out from Big Life. And fairly shortly, we parted company with them. And at that point, we set up Ninja Tune. So, you know, we did that because. When we first started with Ahead of Our Time, you know, it was great doing it the way we were doing it. I used to drive around in my van and sell the records into the record shops in the back of the van. And, <laughs> you know, there was, it was a real hands-on thing yes, and a great, great way of learning the systems and stuff. And, you know, I'm not saying that all relationships with major labels or with, even with independent labels are always smooth. Each party has their own individual view on things. but. You know, we just felt it was more hands-on the way we were doing it, and we had more control. And at that time as well, you know, we I think we felt we had more understanding of the scene that we had been birthed by. Right. And I think that that is really the genesis of many indie labels. You know, my husband started a label called Kill Rockstars in the U.S. in 1991. So right. it was very much a similar deal, you know. We, yeah. We know how to do that. Our finger is more on the pulse of of what's going on. Exactly. And, and you know, sort of, it, especially in contrast to what was going on in mainstream rock in the 80s, which was, you know, hair metal, which I think yeah. birthed 30 years of uh, <laughs> rebellion against. <laughs> yeah. I have a kind of guilty pleasure for hair rock, mainly the costumes, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> right. <laughs> they were pretty great. They were cool. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> they were. They were cool. 
So I wanted to ask you about this. This is just something that I have observed. When I lived in London in 1991, I was really blown away by the fact that you could go to a dance club in London and you could hear interesting, popular songs, you know, songs that were being put out by current artists in the dance clubs on the dance floor. And that was so different from the type of music that was played in dance clubs in the U.S. Yeah. That it really shocked me. Is is it still like that, or how has that changed? Well, to be honest, I don't go out to young people's clubs as much as I used <laughs> Oh my to. God, we're too old to talk about this. <laughs> I don't but, remember. I don't know. <laughs> I do keep an eye on what's going on. And I do love to go out and I still love to party, <laughs> to be honest. But yeah, I, I have to book a week's holiday afterwards. Anyway, <laughs> that's life general direction for all of us. Yeah. I think, like everything, there will be places where you could go to and you can hear that stuff and you can have an amazing time. And you know, the club scene in the UK has definitely changed significantly over those 30-odd years. So I hear that in the UK there is a shorter turnover from an artist making a record for clubs and it actually being played in the clubs. And also a lot of the artists that make the records are DJing in the clubs as well, so they'll go and take their own music and test it out, which is, you know, what Matt and I did with our early material. We would go to clubs ask DJs to play it, you know, because we knew most of the DJs on the scene, they would often do that. They came to trust us. And similarly, if we were DJing, we would play it. And, you know, that's a very good way of judging, you know, the impact of a record that you have. So I think that still goes on. Oh, yeah. But I mean, you know, it's interesting because your band and your label may in fact have had a significant impact on the culture, on the changes that we've seen, because you guys were extremely creative in the way that you approached DJing. Yeah. We didn't do it purposely. <laughs> there was no rule book then. There was no Royal Academy of DJ skills as such. <laughs> you just learned it from what you could garner via tapes that we got from New York, you know, listening to Kiss FM New York, listening to DJs on there, DJ Red Alert records that came into the import shops and various places where we could try and find that information out. So, you know, we just did what we felt was right, really. And I think that's a good premise, really, still. If you just make stuff that you really feel yourself, then you can't really go wrong. It might take longer than you hope, but, you know, ultimately, I think people who do that do come through. Yeah, no doubt. So Matt and I touched on this a little bit, and I, I think it's interesting because he asked if I had looked at Jam Pro, if I'd been playing around with it at all, yeah. and I said no, and I, he asked me why, and I didn't <laughs> have a good answer, but after he was talking for a minute, I was like, oh, I think he's right. The answer is, I feel overwhelmed. Like, yeah. I'm paralyzed by the number of options. Like, I don't know where to start. It makes me very stressed, and I'm a drummer originally, and drums are so easy. I mean, really. You, you just walk up and you hit them. Yeah. <laughs> There's no yeah. mystery. Yeah, I totally get that. And it is very difficult when you have so many choices. And again, something for us when we started, we were severely limited by both, you know, finances and equipment that was available. And so, you know, put a record on a turntable and move it back and forth or 
put it through a delay machine, like cheap cheap delay machine or some guitar pedal for effects. That that was quite instant, really. Right. And so, fortunately, with the sort of programming software, I mean, I use Ableton quite a lot for making music, and so I grew up with it effectively from you know version zero point zero one to where we are today. So I've had that advantage, but yeah, I think it could spin my head out completely trying to get to grips yeah. with what's going on, you know, and I know sort of, I don't know if they're urban myths and stuff, but I, you know, I, I know of stories where artists have come up and, you know, they've made the most amazing music on the most perfunctory, simple equipment. They get a nice big fat advance from a record company or they earn their first paycheck and they go out and they buy tons of gear and then you know eight years later the record finally comes out after being recorded in 30 different studios across the world or whatever you know <laughs> yep but i sort of having a bit of a joke there but sometimes just sticking with the kit that you've got right but being aware of what's going on can be very effective and we sort of wanted to have that feeling with jam pro so the sort of non-professional version, which is free and works on both Android and iPhones, is pretty instant. You know, we based it around that notion that anybody could pick it up and within a few minutes get the idea and make some reasonably exciting and fun things with it. And so Jam Pro's more complex, more you know, hence the name, but I hopefully we've still retained that joy of ignorance as we call it where you can just pick something up and go bang 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 and get good fun out of it i think if i could overcome my fear <laughs> you know because I, it's like if, if i know there's a whole orchestra that i could use then i'm like well do i really want to use that should i start with that where do i go from there yeah i overthink it yeah but yes i think that that is for people who are used to using technology i think that's it's probably quite a lot of fun is there anything that you, I mean, technology has advanced so much. Is there anything that hasn't happened yet that you're looking forward to? You know, you have an idea of how things could be and it's not quite there yet. I mean, there's loads of tech that purports to do the most awesome things, but actually when you get up close and personal with it, it's quite disappointing. <laughs> you know, obviously if I could just sit down and think of a song and it would automatically come out on a computer and all I had to do was maybe put an electrode on my head or something that would be fun because you know i do have trouble translating what goes on inside my brain down my arms and onto keyboard or whatever you know so the ultimate thing would be just to think music and it happened that would be awesome but i think that's a way off yeah probably i think elon musk is working on that (laughs) i've heard (laughs) <laughs> we did used to play. We had there was a thing that we messed about with a, a long time ago. Was it? I can't remember the guy's name now, but a Japanese guy who was working on translating brainwaves into MIDI. Oh yes, yeah. and uh, it did sort of work, but it, you know, it, like a lot of these things, it wasn't satisfactory. It wasn't enough salt and pepper. Right, and now that we have you know instant gratification culture, yeah. you know, if you can't get it on Netflix within thirty seconds, then you're not going to want it anymore yeah or something i don't know what's going on (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i think you know there's so many different ways of making music now i think it's really a question of finding things that you feel comfortable with and it's fascinating for me to see different musicians taking the same components but radically using them in very different ways i think that's healthy Mm -hmm. absolutely 
And, you know, I think one of the excellent things about new technology that's happening today is that sometimes it's also incorporating samples of older songs, older music, that is then giving the older music a second life, which is, I think, such an exciting thing for us right now. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I think that, you know, it's definitely hip-hop and turntable DJs gift in a way mm-hmm. to the industry it has created a, a scenario where people are really interested in old records and in, in particular in records that were in, you know very inventive for their time but didn't really resonate at the time they were released and so you know, i'm thinking in particular of a band like called suicide mm-hmm. sure who were an amazing band and one i absolutely adored and i remember going to see them supporting I think it was for Clash, maybe. And <laughs> there was only like 300 people there or something. And of those 300, there were probably about four that were into it and everybody else was chucking <laughs> as much stuff as they could have. And I was just blown away. And I, I just thought it was amazing. And, it, you know, it's now they're, they've got their tracks in an advert in the UK. So that's more than yeah, maybe 40 years, maybe more than 40 years later, yeah. finally, yeah. people have woken up to the fact that they were incredibly interesting and an important part of the journey towards electronic music. So, yeah, yeah, <laughs> fascinating how that works. And I think, you know, the streaming world has, has um, enabled people to go, you know, in deep, as it were, and YouTube rabbit holes and all the rest of it. I mean, I spend far too much time getting dragged into all sorts of how shall I put it, scenic routes <laughs> with YouTube or the algorithms that throw up stuff. And, you know, again, it's something I thought against. I was like, algorithms telling me what music I should be into and stuff based on the music I like? Nah, it's not happening. And I have to wholeheartedly take my hat off to whoever program those and say, okay, you got me. Yep, yep. You know, they are fascinating. Yeah. They do, you know, not always all the time, but they've all introduced me to some significant music I wouldn't have known about otherwise. Yes. Well, I want to say congratulations on 30 years of Ninja Tune and 32 years of Cold Cut (laughs) and on your release of Jam Pro. John Moore from Ninja Tune and Cold Cut, thank you so much for being with me on The Future of What? Marvelous. Thank you very much.
That was We Think She's a Nurse by Kinski. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard The Decemberists, Deerhoof, Kinski, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at thefutureofwhatshow.com and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Clark Buckner at the Nashville Entrepreneur Center and is produced by Will Watts. I'm Portia Sabin, president of the Music Business Association. See you next week.